Well, good morning. How are you? Uh, good to have Carmel back. Glad they had a great trip. Uh, believe it or not, Kristen and I were gone a couple of days this week as well to celebrate uh, our anniversary, which happened early in March, uh, 18 years. And so we drove to Vegas for two nights and um, to see Carrie Underwood at the Resort Zorts World Hotel. I know many of you are jealous of that, and you should be, because Carrie Underwood is a specimen when it comes to singing and performing. It was amazing. Now, it should be noted that Vegas really is not our scene. Uh, this is not, you know, we, we uh, at least not the Strip. I mean, we lived there for about six years, and I, we probably went to the Strip uh, a handful of times. And it was usually because somebody in our family came into town and wanted to go see the fountains at the Bellagio. And we're like, you know, fine. It's not really our scene. And so as we walked through the hotel casino, this beautiful $4.5 billion casino, by the way, and if you're thinking of going to Vegas, there is a reason casinos cost $4.5 billion. And it is not because you win, okay? I'm just telling you that there's a giant funnel underneath the casino floor where all of your money goes into the pockets of very wealthy, rich, white men, okay? Don't do it. Just don't do it. But anyway, we're walking through the casino. I couldn't help about think about this very series that we're going through, right? Seeing people take advantage of the, the offerings Vegas gives made me wonder, what does God think of all of this? I mean, it has, it has to make him a little sick watching people take their hard-earned money and lose it at the, uh, the craps table, right? I mean, he must be upset to watch people just blatantly participate in a lifestyle that doesn't align with his. Now, on Thursday night, my wife and I got really crazy, and we went to bed at 9 o'clock, right? Which also meant we were up at 5.30 in the morning. And so I headed down to get us coffee in the hotel, and I walked. You have to walk through the casino no matter where you go. It's very intentional, by the way, if you didn't know that. But you had to walk through the casino to get to the Starbucks. And as I walked by, there were four or five guys standing around a craps table. And I could tell very easily that they had yet to go to bed. I had gotten my straight eight hours of sleep. They'd yet to go to the bed. They were still drinking. They were still gambling. They were partying. Now, it's my guess, like I said, that they hadn't go to, gone to bed. But I couldn't help myself but judge them a little bit. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, I'm the only one. Yeah, I'm the only one, right? It's, it's natural for us to be like, what in the world? Like, why, what are you doing? Like, what, what does it matter with you? And I caught myself. And then I went back to the series, and I went back to that question that I had. What must God be thinking of all of this right now? What, what, what would God's response be to what is happening right in front of me? Now, the story of the prodigal son is one of the most famous in all of the New Testament. It's a parable that Jesus tells in the company of the first century religious elite, namely the Pharisees, and those who are considered notorious sinners, right? The story features then three main characters, the younger son, the older son, and the father. And by the way, if you haven't been here, uh, the older, the younger son, Joe did a great job of covering that. Kristen uh, covered the older son, amazing job doing that. And we're left with this one last character in the story, the father. And it's told in the company of the Pharisees and these notorious sinners in a way of helping those who are listening 
us included, to better understand their situation, our situation, and the very heart of God. And so as we wrap up our series, The Prodigal, we're going to look at that final character in the story Jesus told in Luke 15. And we're going to look specifically as to why he exhibits such a strange, even shocking behavior. So, with that said, if you haven't done so already, open up your, your phone or your tablet or whatever you've got. Go to the YouVersion app to follow along. Or if you've got your Bible, uh, we'll bring the lights up just a little bit and you can follow along that way as well. And uh, just so you know, uh, to find it in YouVersion, you've got to go to More and then Events, and then you can find Genesis Church there, all right? And so we're going to start again at the very beginning of the story, Luke chapter 14. We're going to start in verse 11. And here's what Luke writes, what Jesus says. He tells the story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. Doesn't that what it sounds like? I want your share of the estate before you die. Like, that's what I hear him sounding like, because that's what I would probably sound like. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. I'll stop there because there's something to no, take note of real quick that I think we quickly gloss over that we don't realize happens at the very beginning of the story. The younger son goes and he asks his father for his, an inheritance. And we learned in week one that this was a shameful practice. This was essentially like the younger son saying, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead, so give me what is mine. And the father does this really strange thing. He gives it to his son. But he doesn't just give it to his younger son, does he? He actually splits his inheritance, it says, between the two sons. Both sons, the younger son and the older son, are given the inheritance. A shocking thing, because the father's inheritance is everything he owns. His father gives away everything he owns to his two sons in that moment. But just keep that in mind as we go through the rest of the story. This is a shocking behavior. Nobody does this. No one here would probably do this, let alone the father in story. So let's just keep going. Verse 13 says this, A few days later, the younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money on wild living. All right, so the younger son heads to Vegas, where I was the last couple days, and he proceeds to indulge in all the world has to offer. Instead of saving or investing or, you know, being generous with what he gives, he's been given, he blows it. He just blows it at the craps table and at the restaurants and at the strip clubs. And wouldn't you know it, a famine then hits the area, and it leaves the younger son without food or shelter. No money to be seen. He's spent everything that he has. He's desperate. And so in that act of desperation, the text tells us that he takes a job feeding pigs. A most shameful act for a young Jewish man. Pigs were the unclean of unclean among all the animals. If you read the Levitical law in the Torah, you'll find that pigs especially are considered to be the most unclean animal in the Jewish faith. And yet this young man is now living among them, so desperate for even food that he looks at what the pigs are eating and he says, that looks pretty good. And yet he still doesn't get to eat it. And so realizing his plight, he finally gets the courage to head back home. 
only he's so filled with shame because of his actions, he decides, I'm just going to ask my dad if I can just be a servant in his, you know, his palace. If I could just be somebody that feeds the pigs or the cows or whatever in your palace, at least I would have food to eat. At least I would have shelter. Forget about my sonship with you. I'll just take whatever you have. And so he practices, he rehearses his speech for his father, and he heads back home. Now, it's important to understand that the son's return back to his home after he has spent his inheritance and lived among non-Jewish communities was a major no-no in first century Judaism. This sort of behavior was to be met by harsh punishment known as the kazaza ceremony. Kazaza means to be cut off, or in our culture, to be canceled. Ruth Chow Simons writes of it this way. Upon his shameful return, the older men of the community would meet the younger man at, a, at the city gates and throw a pot down on the ground, signifying the broken relationship and the state of being cut off from his family. A young Jewish male who lost his wealth to a Gentile would not be allowed to return to the community. So during the Kazaza ceremony, the elders of the community would yell and scream and spit on the young men for his sinful behavior while not allowing him to return to the community, to the faith, or to his family. As if the shame of blowing his inheritance, living among the most desecrated animal of the Jewish faith weren't enough. The younger son knew what was ahead of him if he chose to go home. He was about to face the shame of returning back to his community in the form of the Kazaza ceremony. And so this got me thinking, why would he go back? I mean, it's over. There, there's no hope for him. He, he's seen this before growing up. He's seen this happen. He's seen the Kazaza ceremony happen. He probably was an onlooker as his father may have been a part of that or looked on as a child and his family watched as, as child after child who returns home after spending all of their money is shamed and, and, and forbidden to return back to the community. Why would he decide, I'm going to go back? I mean, he won't even get past the city gates, let alone back into his father's house. It's not worth it. So why is the son choosing to do this? Well, my hunch is that the younger son knows something about his father that most don't. He grew up in the house of his father. He watched his father from the day he was born. And he won't, you know, he, the son knows something about his father's character that gives him even just a little bit of courage to head home regardless of the shame he's about to face. There's something that this young son knows about his father that every other listener doesn't. Verse 20. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. Okay, so hopefully the wheels are turning a little bit about what the father does in the same way the wheels are turning for those who are listening in the first century. 
It's like the father is just waiting at the edge of his porch with his binoculars looking for his son, hoping to see his son before anyone else does. Why? Because he wants to save his son from the Kazaza ceremony. He wants to save his son from the impending shame that will be piled on him. He wants to save him from being completely cut off and shamed by the overall community. So not only does the father need to be the first one to see his son's return, he needs to be constantly on the lookout for him. I mean, we don't know how long the son was gone. It seems as though it was far longer than a few days. It could have been months, even years. I mean, if he's been to Vegas, it could have just been a week, right, that he spent everything he had. And the father faithfully stands looking and waiting for his son's return. And then when he sees him, the text says he ran to his son. I remember when I was a kid, I challenged my dad to a race. And I was probably like eight or so. I was a pretty athletic kid. And uh, dad, do you remember this? I don't know where you are, but he's here somewhere. But he probably remembers this. But I challenged my dad to a race. And he was probably in his early 40s at the time. And I thought, you know, no way can this old man beat me in a race. And so reluctantly, my dad agreed. Now, it's important to keep in mind that this was a, a little bit past the days when my dad would let me win, right? I, I had that, too, with my boys. Like, when they were really little, I was like, oh, you scored, you won. And then they got to eight. It was like, I'm taking you down, kid. You need to learn that you don't win everything. And it was like right at that, that fine line where my dad was like, all right, we can race, uh, right? And so, you know, like with my kids, we would wrestle, play basketball I would let them win but around eight years old it all stopped and so did it with my dad and so in my backyard we established you know the starting line and where we were going to run to and I said ready set go and I, I took off I was like <laughs> he doesn't have a chance and about 10 steps in I saw this blur go by me and I was like what was that I just stopped like what just happened? And I look, and my dad is at the finish line, and he's looking back at me like, not going to win this one, kid. And I got to thinking, how did this old man in his early 40s just destroy me in a race? I was young, and I was athletic. I was filled with energy. What happened? And Lena's to say, I never challenged my dad to a race again. I don't know. He's almost 80 now, and I'm pretty sure he could still beat me. I don't know what that is, but there's something about it. But here, here's the thing. You know, it should be noted also that I'm now a dad in my 40s, and I have teenage sons. Not racing them. Not going to do it. Not going to happen. But thinking back to that day, there was this thought that I had as my dad whizzed by me during the race. I couldn't help but think, that's weird. Watching my dad run. That was weird. <laughs> what is going on? That looks weird. I mean, have you ever seen a grown man sprint in everyday clothes? It's, it's weird. This is really a weird thing to watch, to watch a grown man in his 40s run, right? It's a weird thing to see. Now listen. Hold on a sec. 
Ugh. It's weird. It's shocking even to watch a grown man in full clothes just run. Just run. It's weird. And so now I want you to rewind 20 centuries. And a grown man running. Well, it wasn't just weird and shocking. It was shameful. How dare you? Grown men, especially those respected in the community, did not run. There was not an urgency for anything. Grown men were to be regal and put together. They, they were to be, you know, stubborn almost in their appearance and how they went about in the public world. They, they would wear these these beautiful robes that would go down to their ankles, and it was shameful to even show the top or the bottom of their legs. And yet, for a grown man to have run at that time, he would have had to lift up his robe and sprint down the center of the town to his son. Find Snodgrass, an author, brilliant author and theologian, says, respected older men avoided running because it was viewed as shameful to show one's legs and to appear so undignified. That running would force the father to raise up his robe, bearing his legs, and perform a shameful act among the community. Much like a grown man running today, the act was a little weird. It was shocking, and in their context, in their culture, it was shameful. How dare you? But because, the text says, of his love and compassion, the father disregards whatever shame may be associated with running to his son. He needs to get to him before anyone else does so he can save him from being fully cut off from the father's house and the family. Listen, the father isn't just running because he's excited to see his son. The father's also running because he knows what's at stake. If he doesn't get to him, his son will be lost forever. And so the father unabashedly pursues his broken and battered son. No shame. No shame. I don't care what everybody else says or thinks. I am getting to my son because if I don't get to him first, he'll be lost forever. At no point does the father consider the effects of his actions. He springs to his feet, and Usain bolts his way to his son. Because nothing, nothing will keep him from saving his son who has returned. And then if that weren't enough, if that weren't enough, he does the unthinkable for this son who should be being punished and spit on. He decides, you know what, let's throw a party. Because everybody's going to want to be a part of that, right? I don't think there were very many people at the party. But he throws it anyway. He throws a party. And there's not very many people there, including who? His older son. His older son isn't there. Now, listen, you've thrown a party before, right? You've had people over for dinner or whatever. You know, like, we've done that at our house. We've had people over. You know, it's a little bit, like, awkward when the host just, like, gets up and leaves for a while. Sort of like, wh where are they going? Like, they're, they're hosting the party. And yet, this is what the man does. This is what the father does. He looks around, and he sees, my older son's not here. Where is he? And he leaves his own party 
another act of just absolute shame and shock. But he disregards it. Why? Why? Because, because he wants his older son to experience the same joy and love and compassion that his younger son has had. And the older son, you know, he's not having any of this. I mean, he's wondering, where's the Kazaza ceremony? What are you doing, Dad? The guy took your money and he spent it all, right? He went, you know, to the places nobody, God knows where he went, and you're throwing him this party. And it says in Luke 15, verse 28, it says the older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father then came out, and what does it say? He begged him. What father begs their son to do anything? Not a father in the first century, that's for sure. There's no begging his father. The only begging that went on in this passage up to this point was the, the sons coming to him demanding their inheritance. And yet the older son, he realizes, is equally as broken and battered as the younger son. It's just different. We learned that last week. It's just different. And yet the father breaks first century custom. He leaves his own party to go to his son. And people are wondering why he's throwing the party in the first place, and then he leaves it. But just like the younger son, the father unabashedly pursues his broken and battered son. This is the very heart of the father. 1 Peter 3, 9 says, He being the father, God the father, does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent, to return back to him. He doesn't want anybody to not experience the love and compassion that he has to give to them. He wants everyone to return back, to come to the party, to return home from Vegas. He wants everybody to be a part of the party that he is throwing for the family of God. He doesn't want anybody to be separated from him. And so despite their differences, both sons are far from the father, and yet it's the heart of him to pursue them equally, abandoning whatever social protocol to know the depth of his love for them. Now remember, Jesus is telling this story to a divided group of listeners. On one side, you have the riffraff of the day, tax collectors and notorious sinners, the text says. And on the other side, you have the Pharisees, the religious elite, the put-together, right? Those who boast about, Carmel talked about, those who boast about their achievements in this life. They don't rely on God's grace. What do you need God's grace for? They've got it together. God should be begging them, if anything. And to each, he says the same thing. Whether you're identified with the younger son or you identify with the older son, this remains true for all of them. The father unabashedly pursues the broken and battered. You might appear put together, but you know. It's pretty broken and battered inside. And you know, you have lived a life that has left you broken and battered. And you know the shame that that has burdened you with. And the prodigal son is the story of a God who picks up his robe. He sprints to the broken and the battered who leaves his own party and he goes to those who think they don't need him and he begs them to come and to be a part of the family of God. The father flings off whatever expectations of him there are 
He picks up his robe. He sprints to those who turn to him, even from a long way off. The father ties his Nikes, stretches his quads, and runs through crowds of onlookers to save the broken and battered people. Tim Keller, one of my favorite authors and speakers, he wrote a book called The Prodigal God. And really what he's saying is that this story is mistitled. This story should be called the prodigal God. You know, God is often described as this very put together, very stubborn, very, you know, real God who's like, yes, come to me with all of your, you know, achievements and I'll bless you somehow or I'll turn you away. But that's not the God Jesus describes at all. The God that most people had imagined, this is a prodigal God. This is a God that, this is totally different than anything anybody has seen or heard of. As if some, you know, God is some sort of toll booth operator for them, that if they just come to him, then, you know, he'll either let them go through or not if they have enough achievements. This is not the God that Jesus is talking about. So when Jesus tells the story of a God who unabashedly pursues broken and battered people, it is outside of the constructs of normal understanding. Even for us, I think, it is outside of the constructs of our normal understanding about who God is. Really? God, God is on the lookout for the guys at the craps table at 5.30 in the morning? Like, like he's standing at the edge of the porch just waiting for them to return? Like, really? It's easy for us, isn't it, to get stuck in that place where we think, man, yeah, this story is really good. I'm so glad that God unabashedly pursued me, a broken and battered person, but those people? Really? Democrats? Really? Republicans? Right? We, 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 we have this construct of God that Jesus is trying to break all of the molds. molds. He's saying, look, God is nothing like you think he is. He is on the outlook, on the edge of his seat for those who have run away with all of the inheritance he has to give, with all of the gifts and abilities and life that they have been given. He is on the lookout for them. He hasn't turned their back to them. He is standing on the porch waiting for them to come to the city gates so he can beat them, beat everybody else to them and remove the shame from their lives and bring them new life in the family of God. That's the God of the Bible. You could clap for that. This is what God does. This is who God is. I mean, even Jesus, who comes as God in the flesh, would unabashedly pursue the broken and battered. No shame. I mean, he would do the unthinkable. We're about to celebrate Good Friday. Here's what Hebrews chapter 12 says about Good Friday. It says, because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross. What does it say? Disregarding its shame. Don't care. Do not care. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Listen, crucifixion, how Jesus died, was the most brutal and humiliating form of death in all of history. Not just then, in all of history. 
you would be stripped naked, whipped and beaten, nailed to a cross, and then placed high above the city at the tallest point of the city so that people who were miles away could see you dying on a cross. But Jesus disregards the shame of that. Why? Because he, like his father, unabashedly pursues the broken and battered. It, it, you know, the joy that awaited him was, yes, to be seated at the right end of the father, but to give people, us, broken and battered people, the knowledge that God loves you so much that he would walk to a cross and endure its shame so that you wouldn't have to. Out of love, Jesus sprints to the cross, and he gives up his life for you and for me. Now, I suppose this story could end right here, right? We could end, I could pray. I could pray. We're going to do that. The story of the prodigal gives us a picture of salvation and invites us to be received by the Father, this beautiful picture of the Father running to the Son and to the people, these battered and broken people, calling them back into the beautiful, wonderful life and family of God. But this story is more than just about salvation. Certainly, Jesus tells the story to help us see ourselves and God in the right life. But he also tells this story to help us understand that whether you have identified as the older son or you have identified as the younger son or a little of both, you are called to become the father. Romans eight sixteen says, For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are God's children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. Listen, if you have been found by the Father, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, you are now his son or daughter and heirs, he says to the kingdom. The inheritance is yours. You've received your inheritance and are called to be successors Paul calls us ambassadors of God's love and glory. As Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, you must be compassionate just as your father is compassionate. Look, the end goal of this story is not to be found by the father. The end goal of this story is Jesus telling us the father loves you so much that he invites you into the home to send you out just as he did to become just as he is. We now, those who have received his inheritance, who have been given the robe of glory, who now sit at his table feasting, we, church, are to be the Father, to see the people in this world as God sees them, to be at the edge of our porches looking for those who are desperate to hear about God's love, who are desperate for our generosity and our compassion. That's who we are called to be. The end goal of the story is to become like the Father, that we would unabashedly pursue the broken and battered in our world, that we would go and be witnesses of the Father's love and sprint toward those who are hurting and in need of new life in Jesus. I walked upstairs with my coffees in hand, and my $14 coffees or whatever they were. And as I was going up the elevator, I was like, 
I know how God sees those people. He's calling me to do the same. He's calling me to do the same. Not to judge them or to smite them, but have compassion. There are people in your life. There are people in your sphere of influence right next door, sitting next to your cubicle, right across the street from you, who are desperate to hear of the unabashedly pursuit of God to them. And while God will show up in amazing ways, he's called us as sons and daughters, heirs to the inheritance that he has to be that in our world, to become the Father. And so I want to extend a challenge to you. You may have walked in here and you're like, I had no idea that this is who God is. And if that's you, I just want you to receive that this morning. That God has been on the lookout for you since day one. And that he is sprinting towards you right now to embrace you, to bring you into the family of God, to give you new life. Will you just embrace that? And if you're here and you are now already called a son or daughter of God, a child of God, will you embrace and be challenged by the fact that you are now called to be the father in this world? To look upon the people in your sphere of influence with love and compassion. To invite them into the house of God for the party, for the feast. That they would know too that just like you, God is unabashedly pursuing them, broken and battered people. Now, here's the thing. I'm going to give you a really practical way you can do this. In two weeks, we're going to celebrate Easter. There are people in your life who will show up here on Easter if you invite them. If you just ask them, will you come with me? And maybe for the first time, they'll get to hear about this amazing, unabashed love of God that draws them in, that they'll get to experience what the younger son and the older son experienced in that first century story. This God who would leave and disregard all shame to come to them. Maybe they would get to experience that because you decided, I'm going to become the father. Not perfectly, but man, I'm going to see the world and the people around me like the father does. Will you invite somebody here on Easter Sunday because Genesis, we are to be like the Father, unabashedly pursuing those who are lost and broken and battered and burdened by their own shame. So tie up your Nikes, you know, stretch out your quads. You got to stretch first. Sprint toward those who are hurting in your world. Will you bring them to the party this Easter Sunday? That's a challenge to you. I want you, even in this moment, we're going to take two minutes, and I just want you to start to pray for those people. Pray for those people that they would see, and then see the opportunity that stands before them as you send an invite and bring them with you. Let's pray. God, I just want to take a minute and first thank you for how indescribable you are. This story, it just, it doesn't make sense. And yet, it is exactly what we need. And so this morning, I just, for those of you who maybe this is, you're hearing this for the first time, will you just receive that? God, will you, by your spirit, 
just give them a sense of your presence in their life? Will you embrace them by your spirit? Will you receive that? Will you turn back to the Father who is on the lookout for you? And for all of us in here, would we receive the call on our lives to be like you, God? See the people in our world with love and compassion extend an invite this morning. I just want to give you a minute to pray. As those people come to mind, I just pray for them. God, how good you are. And in spite of our sin and our shame, you would pursue us. You would give up everything. Jesus, that you would go to the cross, disregarding its shame, humiliated, endure a brutal death. That is the length at which you would go, that we would know your love and your compassion for us. May we be like you. May we be your representatives, your ambassadors in this world. May we be like the Father, the good, good Father of ours. In his name we pray.